I grew up right next to an elementary school. And I got to walk to third, fourth, and fifth grade every day. And I remember one of the classes in my third grade year, uh, they had this big sign on the board on the classroom wall. And it said, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Now, you've probably heard this saying. You may have said it. And, uh, and it's good wisdom for perseverance. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And I think, you know, what would be, what would be a sign on Balak's wall right now in Moab? If he were in the scene of Numbers 22 to 24 and we watch these oracles take place, what is it that's a mantra motivating him? Well, it would be that. That if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. This is Balak's modus operandi. He is going through chapters 23 through 24, not giving up. He has failed in oracle number one, in Balaam doing what he wants him to do. But Balak will try, try again. The second scene is where we arrive. And we will see the perseverance and urgency that is within Balak. And the crushing disappointment that we heard in the scripture reading time. Now, the second scene is only going to take us today through verse 26. And the reason for this is I'm wanting to maintain a certain structure in each of the messages on Balaam's oracles. In each of the scenes, they begin with a change of location. A change of location and a setting up of offerings and then Balaam waiting for the word of the Lord. Well, the end of chapter 23 says in verse 27, Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them from me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor. Well, all of a sudden we're moving scenes and into really a third location. So we're stopping in verse 26 tonight because the very next verses go with the beginning of chapter 24. They're part of that third location. So today focus on the second scene. Even though it doesn't take us all the way to the end of the chapter, it is longer than the first oracle. You may have already noticed that. The oracle itself this morning was only four verses, surrounded by some other verses, yes. But the oracle proper, only four verses, and this one over twice as long. In verses 18 through 24, you see a lengthier presentation from Balaam, and this is not going to encourage Balak's heart at all. This oracle is primarily about God's unchangeableness. God's unchangeableness. See, the reason Balaam can't do anything since God has decreed blessing for Israel is because God is not going to change his mind. Now, Balaam might be able to pressure other earthly rulers and military influencers and kings like Balak from time to time to think about a different plan, to reconsider a certain strategy. But who has ever given counsel to the Lord? Romans 11 asks us, you know. And when we look at Numbers 23, the unchangeable character of God, Balak thinks of that as really bad news because then he can't get what he wants. I want to suggest to us that the unchangeableness of God is tremendously comforting and good news. We'll reflect on that together. Verses 13 to 15 is the preparation. The preparation of the altars and the sacrifices. This will sound just like the first oracle. Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place, from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them, and shall not see them at all, and then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. 
This is um, a confirmation of Balak's perseverance. He's not gotten what he wants the first time, and so he will try, try again, hoping to succeed with this man. He has paid, of all things, to travel to Moab to do this one task, and Balaam seems to not be willing to do it. Maybe it's a problem of location. And, of course, this is Balak's faulty thinking. It's not merely a problem of location. But he says, well, well, come with me to another place. And then you can see them there. And you will only see a fraction of them and not even all. Well, earlier in the first oracle, they only, he only saw a large amount, but not the entirety of the people of Israel anyway. This second location involves Balaam seeing fewer people. The idea may be, from Balak's thinking, okay, if we just let him see fewer people, maybe this would seem like an easier task for him to do. If, if he looked out at all of those people that he's supposed to curse, maybe he just thought, oh, there's no way I could do that given the amount. Balak says, I just don't want you to focus on that. Let's really draw things down. Let's pare it down visually. Well, you just come to another place, you're only going to see a little bit of the problem here. But of course, in Balak's mind, the problem is huge. He just doesn't want Balaam to be overwhelmed by that. Maybe that's been the issue. The location, the size of the number, we'll just switch it up. So you come with me, and then you curse them for me from there. Everything is so personal here. In the first oracle, he had responded, what have you done to me? And now he's saying, curse them for me. This is more important to Balak, perhaps, than to anybody else in Moab, that it go this way. So they go, in verse 14, to a field. In the field of Zophim to the top of a place called Pisgah. This is the second location. And at this location, we are given a name, this name Pisgah, that should sound familiar, especially when we thought last Sunday about how Balaam and Moses can be set off against one another. That Balaam is a kind of anti-Moses. Pisgah is going to matter because Pisgah is a location we see at the end of Deuteronomy. On a peak of the Pisgah mountain range, a peak called Mount Nebo, Moses is going to die. And therefore, Moses is going to go on this peak, and he's going to survey a large area. And um, this will be associated with what leads up to Moses' death, blessings and pronouncements about the people of Israel. This is Balaam going to this location taken to this place to build altars and a bull and a ram on each one. Now, how many? What's well, the same as before? Seven altars. What are the, the animals? Are they going to be any different? No, this is bulls and rams, seven bulls, seven rams, a pair of each for each altar. I mentioned this morning that this is a very expensive gift. Economically, domestically, this is a, a large thing to put on altars. And not only does it happen once, here it happens again, all of it, all of it again, this ritual. Well, Balaam says to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Once again, Balak is going to stand by the offerings. Balaam is going to separate himself for a small amount of time. We don't know how long. In verses 16 to 17, Balaam's return is reported. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. In the oracle that we saw this morning, I, I, I did clarify for us, right, that we don't know what the detail implies that uh, the Lord met Balaam. He has appeared to the Israelites with the power or manifestation of cloud and fire and a voice proceeding from that. We know that the Lord has um, dealt with Balaam during the night and what apparently are night visions or dreams. What is happening here when it says the Lord met Balaam? We're just not given any more details. But the word is put in his mouth and he's told return to Balak 
and thus shall you speak. Well, we are already prepared for the first oracle's pattern to be followed now. The mold has been set. Balak is wanting Balaam to do something. Balaam will speak only what God says. So now we await, okay, well, what will this be? And Balak probably won't like it. And of course it's true. In verse 17, he comes to Balak. Behold, he, Balak, was standing beside his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said, what has the Lord spoken? And I bet, (laughs) if I could just, you know, imagine here, I bet Balak's question was worded with a kind of shakiness or perhaps a bit of uncertainty behind it. What has the Lord spoken? You know, I just kind of imagine he's much less confident and sure than when he had first brought over Balaam. Balaam has not performed accordingly, right? So now he's, what has the Lord spoken? (laughs) You almost get a sense of, is Balak just dreading it here? Or is he thinking, okay, now, now maybe Balaam and I see eye to eye. We're on the same page here. I'm the one writing the checks. He's the one taking the checks. And so now he's going to give me what I want to hear. The content of the oracle is verses 18 to 24. And this oracle being longer than the first one still highlights the blessing that God has toward Israel, but the unchangeability of that fact on top of it. It tells us Balaam took up his discourse which is prophetic language that we see later in the prophets. When you read things about Isaiah or Jeremiah and Ezekiel with their oracles or words from God, it it is not uh, beyond the biblical author to say something like they took up this word or they provided this discourse. It's prophetic preparatory words, which means we are to understand the following words of Balaam as something from the Lord to Balak That Balaam is not making up, that Balak does not want to hear, but it's the hard reality of God's blessing over the people Balak hopes will be destroyed. But nonetheless will not. He says in verse 18, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. This morning we observed together that in writing and seeing these oracles, we should notice parallel sentences. In fact, our translations will often set apart poetic or prophetic sections if they have parallels so that you can notice them. And that means the way my paragraphs work here, from verses 13 forward, I've got this paragraph of text, but starting at the end of verse 18, there's a break in the formatting. And it's to put more central and poetically arranged what I'm going to read in this this, uh, oracle. And I think that's so that we can recognize parallelism is going to be part of what we read. And in verse 18, the two lines that he begins to speak go together. Notice, rise, Balak, and hear, is followed by the command, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. Well, who's the son of Zippor? The guy in line one. It's Balak. So we're not talking about a different guy in line two. It's the same guy from line one. It's just saying in the second line, similar, uh, the same point with different wording. Rise, hear, give ear. That's a lot of commands to a king. In fact, I bet the king is not used to being given so many commands. Uh, If you're King uh, Balak of Moab, you're probably used to giving the commands. After all, you're the king. And here Balaam is saying, rise, hear, give ear to me. It sounds like something important is coming. And in verse 19, a statement is made about the Lord. And I think this statement, which opens the content of the oracle once Balak has been addressed by name, he is, he is given a description here about God that must be given to challenge Balak's assumptions. 
See, Balak must think that if the people of Israel seem to be blessed by the Lord, that's not anything you have to count on. It's not something that's solid. It's not something that's unchanging. We can deal with that. We'll just build altars and sacrifice animals and hire a seer. And before you know it, these people who've been blessed by God will be cursed by God. But Balaam says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Perhaps this is a statement you've read before in, in the larger doctrinal concerns about trying to demonstrate what theologians have called the immutability of God, that God does not change. And, and it would be helpful for us just to recognize in context what is going on around it. While the unchangeableness of God is the right doctrine from this text, very specifically, God's plan toward the people of Israel is in view. In other words, Balaam has been called to curse the people, according to Balak. But God has blessed them, and he's not like a man that lies. In other words, God's not going to say, well, you know, I had this plan to bless the people, but listen, you know, I wasn't really serious, or it was just deception. I can be manipulated, and now I'm going to curse them. We know that human beings can be that way. God is not like man. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. A son of man or man is talking about the same thing. They're, they're, they're not wanting Balak to think that just because you can tell how people might be, that you can reason from the bottom upward about how God must be. You can't look at the human condition and say, well, we're like this. You know, we, we think one thing and then we can think something else. We get more information. We change our mind. We look at a better plan. You can't look at what we might be prone to do and say, God must be like that. That's reasoning about God from the creature to the creator. And that does not always end up in a good spot. This is a declaration about what God is like and what he's not. He is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Similar statements are said in other parts of the Old Testament, like 1 Samuel 15. God will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. You see, maybe the change of location is what was necessary, and then we can get all this worked out, Balak is thinking. Yeah, but you know, changing location doesn't mean changing God. Putting up new altars doesn't mean a new plan's going to form. In other words, God is not like man, but Balak's strategies are assuming that. The change in location, the different altars, the second try, if you can't succeed, try, try again. He's hoping he can do to God what might be able to be accomplished on a horizontal level from human to human. But the king of Moab will fail. The change of location will not mean a change within God. Immutability is a very precious doctrine in the Bible. Immutability means that God does not change. They were previously at Bamoth Baal, and now they are at Mount Pisgah, and it turns out that God's purpose at uh, um, Bamoth Baal is the same purpose at Mount Pisgah. In other words, a change in location will not help Balak at all. We also need to recognize that God doesn't change his mind, even though there are texts in the Bible that talk about, from a human perspective, something that might sound that way. Here we're being given instruction that it is helpful to know in passages like Genesis 6, verse 6, or passages like Jonah chapter 3. There might seem to be passages in the Old Testament that suggest 
a change within God. But I want us to be very careful here because the Old Testament presents a number of things associated with God that we would not want to literalize. In other words, consider with me that the Old Testament speaks in metaphors about God in order that we might access and communicate in some way with the God who has made us. We are creature and he is creator. And the Old Testament talks about God having a hand and an outstretched arm and eyes that go to and fro in the earth. A mouth that speaks to Moses. And yet we know, if we are careful readers of the Old Testament, that God in the Old Testament is not like a man because he, in having limbs and vocal cords and a mouth with teeth where he's having to utter something with a tongue. Instead, we recognize that this is receiving in the biblical text language about the indescribable one. We're trying to use words and metaphors and language to describe one whom we do not innately understand. God, in that sense, is incomprehensible and makes himself known, if you will, accommodates in human language some ways of understanding him. Now, it is the case that people repent. It is the case that plans of people change. And, uh, and I agree with the theologians that talk about God so-called changing his mind as simply being a way of describing what it seems from a human perspective. But objectively, there's not a change of mind within God. And I want us to think about what actually changing his mind would imply. It's good to ponder this. It's good to think, well, but what if, what if God could change? What if he was not immutable? What if he was mutable? Think about what actually changing his mind would mean. Would God change his mind because he earlier didn't have all the information? That can be one reason why we might change our minds. We think, well, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know this. And so, you know, I thought I would do this and then I learned this. And so now I'm going to do it this way. Would God change his mind because he didn't have all the information earlier? Does he lack knowledge of all things? Or if he has knowledge of all things, does he sometimes just not do what is best? And later changes his mind upon reflecting on his plans. And he said, you know what, I I knew all these particular factors and I just made the wrong strategy or whatever in light of that. I mean, we understand from a human perspective why we have experiences like that. But if God changes his mind, is it because he doesn't have all the information? Is it because he has all the information and just didn't make the right decision? If God changes his mind, would that be for the worst? Could it be? What if his initial decision had been right, but the change of mind was not so wise? And that would mean God is imperfect. If God changes his mind, could that be for the better? And if so, then that means he wasn't perfect initially either. He has gotten some improvement in wisdom. If the mind of God changes, then the promises, covenants, and character of Yahweh cannot be trusted like we need them to be trusted. When when the writer gives us these words from Balaam, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. We need to maintain in our reading of the Bible as interpreters a creator-creature distinction where the way we understand ourselves to be in our human condition can't be just imparted to the being of God and say, well, he must be like that too. 
Even though the Bible talks in ways about God's arm and eyes and ears and walking with Adam and Eve, language that seems to imply metaphors and pictures of access and intimacy and relationship. But God still is not man. So the risk, the danger, is that we we would take something that's meant to be non-literal, something metaphorical about our understanding of God, and make it as if God is like man. We don't want to speak in these ways. It would be theologically unsound, indeed disastrous. He, He continues with questions in verse 19. Has he, God, said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? These questions are raising then not just the fact that God is unchanging. If God has spoken, you can trust that he will complete whatever he has said. Because if God's mind does not change, then his intent and determination to fulfill his plan will not be altered either. If he has spoken, then you can take it to the bank. If he has spoken, he will fulfill it. Because he won't change his mind like man does. God is not like man. And this is good news for the Israelites. It's good news for the new covenant community because it means God will keep his promises. We need to be able to affirm the unchangeableness of God because we have been justified by grace through faith alone. And I just want you to know God's not going to change his mind about that. He has set his love upon you from the foundation of the world. And that's not going to be altered a thousand years from now. And his giving of his son out of his love and mercy to you and his adoption of us as his sons and daughters isn't something he's going to look back and think, I should have done that differently. God is not like man. It is good that when we think about the love of God and His steadfast mercy and His covenant promises, that the unchangeability of God is a bedrock to celebrate those things upon. He says in verse 20, Behold, I received a command to bless. He, meaning God there, has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. Well, of course, how could He possibly This is the Lord of heaven and earth. How could Balaam even conceivably do something that will overturn the sovereign decree of Almighty God? The mere idea of it is so ludicrous, it defies any actual substance and explanation. So Balaam says, I received a command to bless. So what am I going to do? I can't give anything other than what I received. And that is to confirm and just say out loud what a blessed people Yahweh has given God has blessed. I cannot revoke it. This once again returns to the inability of Balaam. And when you hire someone for a job, the thing you don't want them doing is going on and on about how they're unable to do it after you have brought them so far from the Euphrates River even. And Balaam has showed up and in both oracles now, he's talking about how we can't do this. Very crushing news if you're Balak. And this was your plan. This was your big military strategy, clouded and cloaked in in spiritual uh, powers and manipulation of uh, this seer Balaam. I received a command to bless. He, God, has blessed. I cannot revoke it. And the blessed language reminds us of Genesis. Where do we learn that the people of Abraham are blessed by God? Well, we learn about this in the first book of the Bible. 
You can't get past the first book of the Bible to recognize that God's heart toward the Israelites through this family of Abraham is to bless them and through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through his coming offspring. That won't ultimately be Isaac. It's going to be the one Mary wraps in swaddling cloths and lays in a manger. We're talking about the seed of Abraham. It's good that God won't change his mind. And the birth of Jesus Christ is one more installment and confirmation of the long narrative history of God's dealings with the people of Israel that God has decreed it and he has not decided otherwise. In other words, he has set about to bring on the the birth of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3 forward in narration. And we see the birth of Christ in the New Testament all those many millennia later. Why? Because God is not a man. Who would lie or change his mind? In other words, God has spoken. Will he not fulfill it? You shouldn't be surprised at the manger. You should think, well, of course he would do this. He said he would do it. Why would there be any doubt? He promised to send the offspring from David's line. Why would we even consider or be skeptical that he may or may not come through? He has spoken it. And he's not like man. God is blessed. I cannot revoke it, Balaam says. In verse 21, he, God, has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, and he's not seen trouble in Israel. This is a trickier parallel uh, set of statements here in verse 21. He's not beheld misfortune, Jacob. Now, the words misfortune and trouble probably don't speak most directly to Israel being, you know, a sinful people. It's obvious that they are sinners and that they have caused spiritual trouble and distress for themselves and will in the future. I don't think this is Balaam saying, you know, when God looks at the Israelites, he just sees the people who aren't in any trouble. <laughs> oh, well, we've read enough of numbers to know that's not true. Uh, this is the people who get themselves in all sorts of trouble. And even before this book is over, more trouble awaits them. This must mean something else. That when God looks upon the Israelites, this is in view of his plans. His plans for the people of God. What does he behold? Well, he has sought to bless them and to work for the good of the people and to bring about ultimately the Messiah. That means his plans are not for evil or trouble or misfortune. When Balak looks at the Israelites, he's hoping God means trouble and misfortune for them. But that's not God's plan. When God looks at the Israelites, he will see through his purposes and fulfill all of his plans. And that's not for Israel's misfortune or trouble. So I read verse 21 as how does God discern within Israel or what does God discern within Israel as he looks upon his people and his plans for them? Well, he sees his design. I think this is similar to Joseph's own recognition of God's providential work in his own life in Genesis 50. What others meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, it was not God's ultimate design for Joseph that misfortune and trouble define and characterize him. But rather that Joseph's purposes and the plan of God be what they show in Genesis to be and beyond. We notice here in verse 21 then that Balak wants one thing for Israel. And Balaam says... That's not God's plan. Misfortune? No. Trouble in them? No. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. Now those two lines also go together. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of the king. This refers to the Lord. The king is the Lord among them. The military encampment of the Israelites. uh, It it reflects other arrangements in the ancient Near East. People have uh, sometimes noticed 
in ancient Near Eastern discoveries that, that uh, whether it's in Egypt or elsewhere, that uh, designs of an army can be around the presence of a king if he's in the camp, that there is a surrounding of the king. And the Israelites camp around the tabernacle. And this likely shows not just the holiness of Yahweh to be at the heartbeat of their camp so that they would approach by the very means and protocols that God has laid out in Leviticus and Numbers, but also that being in the middle of the camp of Israel is a mark that God is king among them. He is their king. He has delivered them. He is deliverer and he is their king. They are to submit to him. They're to serve his purposes in the world. His words are good. His commands should be obeyed. He has a royal authority. In fact, he he says in, in Exodus 19 that the people of Israel, redeemed from Egypt, are a kingdom of priests. Now, if they're a priestly kingdom, if there are people heading into the promised land, well, who's ruling over them? Well, the answer is Yahweh. He's the king among them. The shout of the king is among them. The Lord their God is with them. This is the Emmanuel truth in the Old Testament. God with us is not something that the New Testament authors said, well, okay, well, this is new, God being with his people. No, the way God was with them was in the incarnation in the New Testament. But that wasn't the first time God was with them in ways that we see now foreshadowed in the Old, that God's presence and favor and hand was working among the people of Israel. And the Lord their God with them is certainly seen in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant hidden behind the veil. All of this is to say when God in verse 21 looks upon Israel, his designs are not for their trouble or misfortune, but for their blessing. Bad news for Balak then. In fact, God is not just anyone to trifle with. He is their very king. He rules among them and is with them. Not only is he faithful in all of his promises, they can count on his presence. His presence is with them. The history is given in verse 22. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Let me tell you why that's really good news. Because nobody wants to mess with that end of the ox's horns. Okay, So if you are are on the receiving end of the ox's horns, you are in a bad situation. And God brings them out of Egypt talking about how he has redeemed them. In fact, even using it in a present way, as if they're not just a people who were once redeemed, they continue to be defined by this. They are the people being brought out. It's as if the deliverance out of Egypt isn't complete until they're in that promised land. That's why they were delivered. They weren't delivered just to wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and God says, well, that's why I brought you out after all. No, they were delivered from Egypt to be brought into the promised land. And in this sense, he's still bringing them out. The Exodus work continues. They are a people who have been delivered and are being delivered. I mean, in the new covenant, we would say we have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. And God has redeemed us and his work of, of saving and sustaining grace will take us all the way to the inheritance that is to come. God brings them out and he is for them. Oh, it's those little words. He's not against them. It said he's for them. And it just makes me think of Paul in Romans 8, doesn't it you? That if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, King Balak here is completely outmatched because no matter who else might ally with Balak, God is for Israel and therefore Balak doesn't stand a chance. God is for them. Like the horns of the wild ox. In other words, this is no light thing to trifle with 
Balak to oppose the Lord would be to put himself in the target range of an ox's horns. And that is in a deadly position. In verse 23, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now, that's not to say that somebody might not try. You know, even if Balaam said, well, I won't go uh, to to Balak and, and pronounce blessings. I won't submit to the will of the Lord. Or even if other enchanters were tried to, were uh, gathered around and cajoled and paid. Even if any of these could pronounce enchantments. When it says here there's no enchantment against Jacob or no divination against Israel, I take this to mean that would be effective. In other words, when you look at the people of God, some large statements are being made as an overview here. They can cast all the darts against Israel that they want, all of the spells. They can read all the intestines from the animals, chart all the stars and constellations in the sky, predict what they want. God has purposed and he has decreed blessing for the people. And that means no enchantment or divination against Israel will stand. Principalities and powers can do their worst. God is for the Israelites. In fact, it shall be said in verse 23 of Jacob and Israel, which is again patriarch and his people. Jacob is the collective singular, right? Jacob and Israel, same thing. They will say, what has God wrought? Now that's not a question. It's an exclamation. It's a, it's a behold what God has done. In other words, all right, you look at these people, it seems like the spiritual powers can't take them down. It looks like all the military people with Moab and elsewhere, it looks like all of their forces are going to crumble. And no one is going to say, how mighty is Israel, therefore? No, they will say, behold what God has wrought. In other words, if Israel cannot be overthrown by the wiles of Balak and the spiritual prophecies of someone like Balaam, it will not be because Israel is so powerful. The glory belongs to God. It shall be said of Jacob and Israel what God has wrought. In verse 24, the last part of the oracle says, Behold a people. Now he's seeing fewer of them this time, right? Different location, second location, fewer people. But nonetheless, behold, perhaps another command to Balak. Balak, will you just look? Look at them. Behold the people. And then he compares them to a lioness. As a lioness, it, this is the people of Israel. It rises up and as a lion, it lifts itself. Well, now, if you're walking down the path and here you go, ho-hum, and you're just, you know, minding about, and all of a sudden you see, you see off the beaten path, a lion that begins to stir. I bet you wouldn't keep going in that same way. I bet you would try to move away. I bet you'd try to hide yourself. You'd stop making noise. And, and what you wouldn't do is continue to try to provoke this lion that's already being stirred. This lion that's beginning to lift itself. Here, the people of Israel are being described as something that Balak should fear. He should not think, oh, you know, it's just the Israelites. It's just these people. Balaam, curse them for me. Oh, that would be as if you were to stir a lion thinking that that's a good idea. It does not lie down, he says, this lion. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Well, that's a grotesque image for you on a Sunday night. Drinking blood and and devouring its prey. Balak thinks, I'm the predator and Israel's the prey. It's the opposite. Balak 
is on the wrong side of that equation. Balak is not the superior one. God is for the Israelites like the horn of a wild ox. And here the Israelites are like a lion that could lift from the ground and rise to be the predator over against the prey. That's the oracle. The unchangeableness of God. The covenant promises of Yahweh. Balak says to Balaam in his response in verses 25 and 26. Do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. And you think, well, he wanted Balaam to curse him. Like, why is he saying this? Because when he says, curse them for me, this is what Balaam does. And he says, well, then we can just put a stop to that. Just don't curse them. Because if I'm, if I'm going to say curse them and this is what you say, then I don't want you to do that. Because apparently <laughs> we, you and I don't understand the word the same way. When I say curse, you're blessing. And don't bless them. Don't curse them at all. Balaam must be so exasperated. And in verse 26, Balaam responds, didn't I tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? Reiterating to Balak, I have committed here to do the will of the Lord in what I speak. We know in Numbers 22, that wasn't always Balaam's personal position. But through the compulsion of the Lord and the warning of the angel of the Lord, and no doubt the insight Balaam is getting about these people through these oracles, this is a serious thing. Balaam says, didn't I tell you all the Lord says that I must do? Balak wants Balaam to say what he wants him to say. But Balaam says, I can't do that. I won't do that. I'm unable because God is unchangeable. This oracle highlights the power of God. He's with them like the horns of a wild ox. He's delivered them out of Egypt. This is a God who has redeemed and overcome adversaries. The presence of God is highlighted. He is a God who is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. This is not a God who's aloof and distant, but rather near and imminent for his people to love and care and guide them. And not only is his power on display, and not only is his presence on display, his unchangeable character is remarkably good news. God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not going to change them for Balak. And Balaam can't change them no matter how much money the check says. God is unchangeable. And this is the foundation for a great confidence we should have. The doctrine of divine immutability. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I just want you to know that at the end of the Old Testament era, they were still saying the same thing about God. In Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. In the New Testament, it says the same thing the Old Testament does. I don't want you to think that when you get to the New Testament, maybe the authors figured out something new. And, and the Old Testament authors thought God didn't change, but then we found out He did. And In the New Testament, James 1, 17 says... Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, with whom there is no shadow due to change. In other words, if you, if you see a change in shadow, you see your shadow reflected in this area, and then after some time you see it moving a little bit, well, that's because, you know, the, everything's moving. We're on a spinning planet hurtling into the galaxy. And here we have shifting shadows signifying some kind of change objectively. James says God's not like that. God's not like man that he should change his mind. God's not like shadows that shift and change. 
The comfort for this, friends, is that in the advent of Christ, we celebrate the fulfillment of God's unchangeable purposes. God's power. What he has accomplished in the giving of his son. The one that would have the kingdom to outlast all other kingdoms. The one whose very presence is with the people of God. You think you could celebrate the presence of God here. They're going to name the son Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh, this is better than the tabernacle. As great as that was, as impressive as that was, Jesus in the incarnation is better. And the unchangeable purposes of God are demonstrated with his perfect character. Dear believer, God loves you. And you never have to wonder, could a day ever come when he won't? He loves you. He has never not. Because he doesn't begin to do things. As God in his sovereign glory and majesty and immutability, you have been loved from the foundation of the world. He loves you and he will never change his mind about it. We celebrate the coming of Christ and we think about his incarnation because of God's demonstration of his love through the work of his son. And most brilliantly in the wisdom of the cross. Truly the shepherds would not have understood everything when they arrived in Luke 2. But important things had been shared by the angel. That good news of great joy for all people was to be celebrated. That one was born in the house of David and be laid in swaddling cloths and in a manger. If the shepherds were to come, they would hear the sweet baby sounds and cries of a newborn named Jesus. And if they stayed, if they stayed long enough and they listened carefully enough, it might have been said, the shout of a king is among us. Let's pray.